The State Department is using open source data and mapping software to track instances of war crimes in Ukraine. The Conflict Observatory is a federal foreign assistance program run out of the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the team lead for that program, Susan Wolfenbarger. The idea behind the program and really part of the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization's mission is to kind of look ahead, you know, and anticipate conflict and crisis situations that might be kind of on the horizon and to think about how the U.S. government could respond if those things happen. So, you know, not everything that we think might potentially happen actually comes to pass, but if it does, we're ready to respond more rapidly than if we wait for the events to happen. How how big is the team at the Conflict Observatory? The Conflict Observatory team is absolutely phenomenal. There's so many different organizations that are part of it. We have the Yale School of Public Health's Humanitarian Research Lab, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative, we have Planetscape AI, we have Quiet Professionals, we have Esri, we're also working with the University of Maryland and the Virginia Natural History Museum's Cultural Heritage Monitoring Lab, and we're adding new partners uh, in the near future. So we have almost 70 folks that are subject matter and technical experts that are working as part of this program to lead it forward. Got it. And I mean, it obviously has this sort of focus on what's going on in Ukraine with Russia's invasion. Can you explain how you're tracking potential war crimes? I mean, not just war crimes, damaged buildings, potential damage to cultural heritage sites, looting, mass graves, crop infrastructure. There's a lot of different things that you're looking at. Can you just kind of explain how you're pulling all that together? So the key aspect, I think, of doing this uh, documentation, the first is that All of the implementers that are doing the research as part of the Conflict Observatory are following international protocols for evidence collection. So there are some different things like the Berkeley Protocol for Digital Open Source Investigations that lays out kind of the framework for how you have to do the analysis so that it can be admissible in court. And so all of the implementation teams, as they are pulling on these different uh, geospatial data feeds, so we have a lot of commercial satellite imagery, optical, uh, both high and low resolution. We're using some synthetic aperture radar. We're using some thermal detections from NASA satellites. So we've got this whole suite of fully remote technologies. That's one of the main data feeds that we're using to do this documentation. Obviously, you know, we've all seen satellite imagery of destroyed buildings and and museums and, and cultural sites and all these things. But then another part of this is called digital open source investigations. So this is going into social media and, you know, looking at blogs and telegram feeds and all of that and finding, you know, statements by officials, finding photos and geolocating those because there's different techniques you can use to actually figure out where a photo was taken based on the visual clues in it. The same thing with video. And so another aspect of what the teams are doing in their documentation is going out and finding all of those corroborating pieces of information that sit alongside the geospatial data that we're getting from from satellites and other sources. Wow. And this seems like such a new way of tracking a conflict. Would this have been possible even five years ago? I mean, how has this sort of playbook come together? Yeah, I think the field has really moved 
leaps and bounds ahead in the past few years. Uh, there's more data feeds that are coming online all the time. I used to do this in a, in a previous work before my time at the State Department, and I would remember trying to get one after image of a location. And, you know, I could order a satellite image, and it might be a couple of weeks before I got it. And now the teams can get images every single day. And so that really helps so much when you're trying to pinpoint, you know, if there's an investigation, you need to know what day that was instead of saying, well, it was destroyed sometime in this three-week period. You can say it was intact on this day, and the next day it was destroyed. So this availability and speed of the data is really I think revolutionizing the digital investigation area. You can you can just do everything so much more quickly than you could before. And because of the volume of the data, so like the daily satellite imagery, you can start doing these things with, with AI and machine learning and start automating some of these processes. So you don't have individual people that are zooming in down to the level of a building and looking to see if each one is damaged. You can actually automate that process and so you're speeding up the tempo and the the availability to actually keep up with the number of events that are happening. I wanted to ask about AI and machine learning. I mean to what extent does that feature in your work? What are its uses? What are its limitations uh, in this field? AI has been used a couple of times thus far by the the conflict observatory implementers. So one of those is a company called Plantscape AI and they're producing several kind of large-scale data sets for us. They're, they're taking other data feeds and creating new data from it. And so one of those is the nearly daily uh, damage assessments that they're doing across eastern Ukraine, and they're running all this background processing every single day. They're finding all the imagery that's being collected. I mean, obviously you have issues with cloud cover and things. It's been winter in Ukraine, and so that does hamper things to an extent. But, you know, they're able to automate these things for us and have that information available for the other teams. So they're building these baselines of data that the other teams that are doing investigations have to draw on as well. And I think that's one of the strong points of the conflict observatory is that there's this team that have different areas of expertise. So Planetscape AI does the automation and machine learning. We have the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative. They've created a database of 28,000 locations of cultural sites, museums and monuments and cemeteries and, and churches. And so they're monitoring those. And the Yale Humanitarian Research Lab is looking at maybe some of the more traditional kind of human rights violations and things like that. But they also, the Yale team, did some work with um, some machine learning and automation on a report that they put out about targeting of grain infrastructure in Ukraine. And so grain silos and conveyor belts and things like that have very standard shapes. And so that's something that you can train uh, an algorithm, a model, to look for very easily. And so they ran that across eastern Ukraine to find all of those, those locations. So the teams are really trying to innovate so that we can more quickly find this information that otherwise, you know, if you think about the the other option, which is to have somebody scrolling through, you know, Ukraine is large. <laughs> and, to, and to have people trying to look at those sorts of things visually, you would never be able to keep up with that tempo. And so we have to have this kind of automation of these things. Got it. I, and I, I know you mentioned that there's a very big open source component to this. 
How is the conflict observatory using it? I guess what are some best practices, some some insights you can give us into the use of open source to kind of drive your work forward? Yeah, I think we would go back to the international standards and the protocols. So within the Berkeley Protocol for Digital Open Source Investigations, they really say that the you know to determine something at a high confidence, you want to have five separate pieces of information that point to that same thing. And so all of the reporting that's publicly available on conflictobservatory.org has had that level of verification. And so you want, you know, statements and photos and satellite imagery and all these things. Like, you want these things all pointing to the same type of event, the same action. That way you're not kind of getting misled by disinformation or something. But if you have those very disparate sources, it obviously makes the, the information more more trustworthy. Sure. You don't just want to be relying on one one point of information. How did this come together? Was it because of the... Ukraine conflict that you decided to stand up the conflict observatory itself or was this something the bureau had already been contemplating? I think in in a way this is an extension of previous work in the bureau. I'm in the office of advanced analytics and we were already running an ArcGIS enterprise. It's actually part of our we call it our instability monitoring and analysis platform or IMAP. And so that platform is available to all 75,000 State Department employees. And so we were already running the same base system that we are using with the Conflict Observatory. And we've had other programs in, in other locations that have you know, thought about how we can take advantage of all of these different data feeds. And so this was uh, you know, a really obvious next step for us in terms of kind of thinking about how we can gather this information and have it analyzed and have it shared publicly. You know, all the implementers are working out in the open. As I said, they're NGOs, they're academics, you know, they're all really recognized experts in their fields and they've been doing this for decades. And so we're really just focused on enabling them to do their research and to have the resources that they, I think all cases, have not had access to in the past. What's the future of the conflict observatory beyond Ukraine? Has that conversation happened yet? Yeah, I, I think this kind of investment in technologies and analytics is something that, that we're looking at into the future, particularly in CSO as a bureau. I actually am running a, a new team that we've created that's focused specifically on looking out and seeing, you know, where else could we do similar programs to the Conflict Observatory in the future? You know, we don't really have an answer right now about that, but it's definitely something that we're exploring. Susan Wolfenbarger, team lead in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost uh, 
Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on, a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, DC. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Shriver, Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.